Shame is a sensitive topic. The interesting thing about running these uh, kind of series at the project is uh, I get um, responses from people when they say things like, uh, it was good, it probably didn't go deep enough. And you know what? When it comes to shame, I'm not going to be able to go deep enough in uh, three messages. Because part of the thing with shame is you're actually going to need to stop long enough and be reflective enough to spot it and to see where it is. Hopefully what will happen in this series is that you'll get an understanding of what shame looks like and you'll be able to spot it everywhere. And the truth is um, that it is everywhere. It's all over the place. It doesn't actually matter whether you've been in the church for a long time or whether you've never been to church. Shame exists and we don't like to talk about it. What we do like to do is we like to hold it all together. We like to hide it. Rarely do we find out the shame that other people actually carry. You see, in the Bible, the Bible's quite clear about the fact that shame is like physical... The physical uh, analogy for it is, uh, is nakedness. And that's what shame is. Shame is a sense of nakedness, not a pornographic nakedness. It's kind of that dream that you have about going to school naked. That's the kind of thing that shame is, you know. It's like people are seeing me, I'm exposed, and they're staring at me probably with a bit of a frown. We're a bunch of hiders... We hide our shame from our families, from our parents, from our friends, from our co-workers, and we even try to hide it from ourselves. I actually think, uh, I was thinking about shame this week when I was preparing this message, and uh, I don't know if you've ever, you guys heard of that game called Whack-A-Mole, the Whack-A-Mole game? You heard of that? It's like this game where these moles keep popping up, and you've got to whack the thing back down, and as soon as you whack it down, another one pops up somewhere else, and you've got to whack it down. Shame's like that, all right? Shame kind of just pops up and you kind of whack it down and then it pops up somewhere else and then you whack that down and it just keeps popping up all over the place. It seems that the more we try to cover shame up, the more we try to hide, the more it pops up. So what is it? What is this difficult thing we call shame? Well, if you look at the dictionary, they'll give you some help. Shame is a feeling of guilt, regret or sadness that you have because you know you've done something wrong. That's what the dictionary would say. I've been reading a book and drawn a lot of uh, material from a guy called Ed Welsh, who's one of the biblical counsellors. Here's what he says shame is. Shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. You're disgraced because you acted less than human, you were treated as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. So I'm just going to pause for 30 seconds. Just read, read through that again to yourself. It's actually very, very profound. Shame is a sense of dirtiness. It's a nagging sense of worthlessness and uncleanness. See, once you start to see this, once you get a bit of a definitional idea, you'll start to see it popping up around the place. It's more than just embarrassment, because you know what you can do with embarrassment is you can laugh about that later, right? But you never laugh about shame. You never laugh about shame. It's never funny. It's almost like uh, the classic example for me is, uh, is the sporting team. You know when you, you go back to your school days, think back to your school days in that moment when the two captains are picked and they get to pick their team. And they pick the good guys first, right? 
the good guys or the, or the good girls. Maybe it doesn't happen with girls as much, but this is through and through what happens with the male thing. They go, we're playing soccer, we're going to pick the best soccer players first. And you know who gets left to the, the end? The one who's the most useless. True. The one who's the most useless. And you know what? It's really interesting because that's actually a bit of a snapshot about what shame is. And what actually happens on those teams is often when that last person has to go to the last team, they get to pick, there's an audible groan that they got that person. And there's a sense in which you can see shame operating there. That, that kid's an outcast and he had to go with a particular team and because he went with that particular team, now all of the people in that team are associated with him so they get shame by association. Do you get that? You see, shame is about being shunned. It's about your fear of being shunned. It's about people ignoring you as if you didn't exist. It's like being naked. You don't belong. You're unacceptable. You're unclean. You're disgraced because of the wrong that you've done or you're disgraced because of the wrong that's been done to you or the people you're with. And people stare at you as though you're hideous. You're worthless. Especially in comparison to those you respect, you're worthless. I suck. I'm a loser. It's hopeless for me. It's useless. My life's a big mistake. It's okay for everyone else to get help with their problems, but not me. Mine don't deserve help. This is a common thing that I actually encounter in people that I work with, pastorally. Yeah, it's okay for everyone else to talk about their problems, but not me. Mine don't deserve to be out there. What about when you're dumped? by a friend, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a husband or a wife. It's shame. Forsaken people feel worthless because they feel like there's something that's very wrong with them. But what's interesting about it is if you've been dumped as a friend or a wife, husband, boyfriend or girlfriend, is the shame that is heaped upon you probably falls far short of the shame that you heap upon yourself because we kick in don't we in our in our hearts we kick in and we add more shame on top of the shame from what people have done to us one of the classic fears of a successful businessman is that one day they're going to be exposed for the sham that they are it's actually a classic fear And uh, I was talking to someone a little while ago and they said, I'm scared that one day someone's going to bring an accusation against me, not any particular accusation, but just some kind of accusation and charge against me and it's going to stick. And it's true. And all of a sudden, everyone's going to find out what I'm really like. That's an interesting fear because I think that's a fear that most of us have. There's probably a part within all of us that we don't talk about. And you don't even talk about it with your closest friend or your husband or your wife. Because there's that fear in there that says, if this actually comes out, finally everyone else is going to find out what I'm like and they're going to reject me. If you understand what I'm talking about, you understand shame. So you can be a workaholic and a cleanaholic because of shame. Because it can be like this paper mache thing. It's like I'm going to wallpaper over my inadequacies and I'm going to do really, really well at working. Maybe I'm going to clean really, really well. I'm going to have things all squared away and really neat because I want people to think something of me that I don't actually think I deserve, but I don't want them to see the real me, so that's what I'm going to do. 
wonder if you've ever asked yourself this question, why do critical words stick to us so much? My wife and I were just talking about this a few days ago. I can remember a time when I was about 15 or 16, I was at my nana's house, which is my, uh, my dad's mum, mum and dad's place, my nana and pop's house, and we're sitting there and I think we were playing some game or a card game or something at the table. And uh, I remember to this day, and I've just turned 40 last year, I remember to this day my nana saying this to me, she said, get your big arm off the table. And my nana was a, she wasn't being massively rude about it, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a sondagalism to be honest, it's like you just tell people stuff and do you know that actually hurt for a long time for me, right? And my wife and I joke about it because she just thinks, oh, you just brush it off, right? But my, my point here is this, why does it stick? And I think what, the reason why words stick to us so much is because they actually correlate and they connect to something that's actually true that's going on deep down inside of us. You see, I struggle with my nano saying, get your big arm off the table because deep down I struggle with shame. And I struggle with not being good enough. And I struggle with feeling worthless and feeling like an outcast. Do you get what I'm saying? And when she says that, it's almost like that's just an accusation. But then the evidence starts to chime in internally within me. That is the evidence that that's actually the case and that that's actually true. So I think critical words stick to us because they resonate with the shame within us. It says we're not good enough that we really are an outcast. So where does shame actually come from? Well, if you noticed in Ed Welsh's quote there before, he actually suggests this. He says, shame comes from what you did or you do, from what happened or is happening to you and from who you are associated with. Shame can come from people saying to you, you'll never amount to anything. Shame can come from critical words. One area in particular that is a very difficult one at the moment is uh, the issue of sexual assault and sexual abuse. If you go onto the Bravehearts website, which is some kind of authority for sexual abuse, you'll actually read there that one in seven males and one in uh, four females will be sexually abused as children. You know what that actually means is that in a group this big, some of you have been through that. And when someone does that with a child, they bring shame upon the child that lasts for for many, many years. And coming out of that is a sense that I'm dirty. I'm dirty. Someone else has actually made me dirty. Sexually violated women feel this. It's not uncommon for women who have been sexually violated to go home and to shower and try to wash the dirt off. I've known of women, I've heard women say before, I'm a dirty girl because of the way that people treated me, so I have to do dirty things. And the truth is, she may not have done it to herself, but the truth is that she's actually contaminated. She's been contaminated by someone else. So where do we see shame in our culture? It appears that our culture is, uh, as the scriptures talk about, our culture glories in shameful things. But I think you can see shame all over the place in our culture and I'll uh, throw a couple of examples out about this. Here's the first one. This guy's saying, I suck at everything I do. Whenever you hear someone in our culture talk about low self-esteem, what they're really talking about is shame, that they're not good enough. 
You can see people in uh, our culture that are fiercely trying to build a healthy resume. There's nothing wrong with a healthy resume, but there's a lot of resumes that try to that are attempting to cover shame. There's a lot of education that's all about becoming significant and valued and important. And they've used that as their tool to get it. What about this one when you sing in the car and someone else sees you? True? What do you do? Well, most of us don't keep belting it out. Some probably do, but most of us probably don't. You just go, oh, okay. <laughs> They're at the traffic light. That's shame, right? All of a sudden, someone's seen me. We've got this lovely place. It's just about to open up. Do you know, shame is about making people worthless. Now, the girls at the vault may not feel this way. But, you know, generally in culture, when a male looks at a female and treats her as an object, that brings shame upon her. Now, the scary thing is, gentlemen, how many women have we looked at like that? Now, I think that the performers, if you want to call them that, at the vault, one day they will feel shame. And it may not be until Jesus comes back. And I think the reason why they don't feel shame at this point in time is because they're driven by other agendas. I think if uh, they got to the point of real wholeness as people, they would feel shame for what they're doing. Adopted kids... I don't know how many adopted kids you know, but a really interesting thing with adopted kids is you can say to adopted kids, how wonderful is this? Especially if they've been taken in by a Christian family, you just go, how wonderful it is that you were um, kind of on your own and all of a sudden someone came along and they grabbed you and they loved you. And it's, it sounds so wonderfully like some kind of gospel, Jesus kind of story. But if you ever get to the heart of talking with an adopted kid, you'll hear them talk about the shame of being rejected by their parents. And you know what? Mostly they don't see the wonderful story that they're involved in. Mostly what they see is that their parents either couldn't have them or didn't want them. And even if you, uh, people who have hallucinations, you know, one one really common hallucination is eyes staring at you. What about this one? You pick your nose in public and you get caught. Have you ever done that? No, you haven't, have you? No one here does it. What about you break out in acne when you're, a, when you're a teenager maybe and someone points it out? Church, people who go to church would be quite familiar with pride, the, the notion of pride and boasting, right? But how much pride and boasting is about paper macheing over shame? I mean, there's got to be huge amounts of it. Are you a name dropper? You know what name dropping is? It's glory by association. That's what it is. It's, it's a sense of covering over shame and if I drop a few names, I'll let some of their glory will rub off on me and I'll be okay. And the thing, interesting thing is, and we've got laws about it, which obviously stops it, but nudity is still pretty taboo, all right? So you've got Danny Minogue, who poses for Australian Playboy and then she has a 60 Minutes interview a couple of years later, which I think it happened last year and she's fully clothed, right? And, she, and it was a very modest outfit she was in when she was on 60 Minutes. And I just think it's really interesting. We haven't given up our addiction to clothes, all right? Because physical nudity still has a shame aspect connected to it. What about this one? 
How long do you look at someone? See, brief eye contact's okay, but if you stare at someone for too long, see, shame starts to come in the mix, right? And that's, you know, the old game about um, the staring game. It's like, who's the first one to break? That's actually, a lot of that's actually about shame because we actually struggle after a period of time to have someone staring right at us for a long period of time to hold that. Have you ever said, I'm ugly or I'm stupid? Verbally or internally? Have you ever said that? You know what shame is. And rhetorical question, but why does the church always talk about openness and transparency? Because people hide. And hiding has got to do with shame. We talk about it a lot here. Because by nature, by human nature, we will hide rather than be open about things. What about, and maybe you're the person who says, I have to do it all. My identity is connected to my performance. My value is connected to my performance. Value is about not being worthless. We fear worthlessness and we feel worthless. I was just on a site this morning. I didn't even know it existed. But it's a site called Codependency Anonymous, all right? I'm not even making this up. It's in Australia, and they've modelled it on the AA meetings, and you can go to Codependency Anonymous, all right, and sit there and talk about your codependency issues. Now, codependency, one, one of the things that happens in codependency is, uh, is someone needs the help of someone else, and so they, they lean on them incredibly heavily, and this person here needs to be needed, all right? And so you have this codependency relationship where someone needs help and the other one needs to be needed and they both kind of end up in this messy kind of setup and now you've got Codependency Anonymous out there to help people break codependencies. Why do people need to be needed? Well, I would suggest to you that it's got to do with shame. And sometimes some of you might hang out with some people who confess things that are not actually their fault. Have you ever been around someone like that? They can confess it being their fault that they're the target of someone's anger or contempt. It's their fault that they got hurt. It's their fault that they've been rejected by other people. It's their fault for being alive. It's their fault for being born. It's their fault for being. You see, we're limping along in shame in our culture. And I think in large part to the crossing of many, many sexual boundaries. See, unfaithfulness, as I mentioned before, unfaithfulness in marriage brings shame upon their spouse. And it'd be good if you're married here today, even if you're in a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship, for you to think, how have I ever brought shame upon the person that I love? And I'd submit to you that you probably have. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to have a go at you because at that point you probably go, oh, okay, not give me more shame, son the girl, all right? Because I've failed at something, right? But I have. I deeply regret the shame that I brought upon my wife. I've given you a whole bunch of ways. I'm not even telling you how I've done it. But I've given you a whole bunch of ways that that can actually happen. 
See, one of the things in our society is there's a, a real effort to destigmatise mental issues and emotional issues, issues that people have. And one of the ways that they do it to take the shame away is they say, well, the person's actually sick. It's a mental health problem. What about being fat when thinness is valued? What about actually needing help from other people? You know, I think the biggest issue in churches is not that people aren't willing to be generous. I think the biggest issue in churches is that people aren't willing to receive help. Because that's got a lot to do with shame. If you have someone around you that regularly criticises you, that'll do it. That'll bring shame. You have someone around you that plays favourites. That'll bring shame. Addicts live with shame. It doesn't matter whether it's a drug addict or a, uh, a sex addict or a pornography addict. And you know, the interesting thing with addicts is that they've got this shame around them because they're addicted to this thing. And what do they do to relieve the shame that they feel? They do it more. And so they end up in this vicious circle that they can't actually get out of. And I don't think the church has done particularly well with handling the issue of homosexuality and the shame that people have that have got same-sex impulses. So what do you want to hide? What do you want to hide? Because that, for you, is where your shame sits. And let me ask you, has something shameful happened in your family? Maybe a suicide, an imprisonment, poverty some sort of public failure. So what we do about shame, that's shame. Here's what we do about shame. First thing that we tend to do in our culture is we give people medications. But you know what? Medications don't really touch shame. All right? They might be a cold and flu tablet that helps a little bit, but they don't really touch shame. We hit drugs and we hit alcohol. As I said before, we shower and we wash sometimes to wash the dirt off. Sometimes we seek education, we seek success, and in, these day and age, in this day and age with uh, multiple social networking sites, we have multiple identities. Multiple identities, multiple personas can often be about shame. I was listening to a lecture in one of my studies a few weeks ago and this, the lady made the interesting point. She said, we live in a culture where people prefer to be admired rather than known. Now, if you think about that, that's, a, that's incredibly profound, all right? If you look at the whole Facebook thing and even just the like button, you know, like for a like, like for a rate, like for a whatever the hell you want me to do kind of thing. What else do we do? Well, we do the Facebook likes. We try to think positive thoughts but you know what? This is really nice. And this is probably one of the main... It's, it's, maybe I've done a bit of violence. If you're a uh, psychologist here today, I've probably done a bit of violence to the therapy that kind of goes on. But it doesn't really get close to it, all right? It doesn't really get close to it. And you know what we do right at the end? When we run out of all other options, we just straight out lie about stuff. Now, I'm going to show you a quick clip. This is a clip from the ABC News. We appreciate their uh, help. They don't even know about it, but it's public information. It was on TV. You might remember in 2011, uh, Kenrick Monk, he was an Australian swimmer, um, lied about something that he did. Uh, very interesting clip. Here we go. 
Good evening, John Taylor with ABC News. Commonwealth Games gold medalist Kenrick Monk says he lied about being the victim of a hit-and-run accident and his injuries were actually the result of falling off a skateboard. Queensland police are investigating whether the swimmer should be charged for providing a misleading statement. The 23-year-old says he's sorry and ready to take the consequences. Kenrick Monk wasn't eager to talk about his concocted story, waiting alone for some time before facing the media. The hardest thing is probably telling my parents, um, knowing what's stuffed up in stuffing you guys around and just the public basically. The chastened 23-year-old left hospital with his broken elbow to apologise, but first he called police to change his statement. He became aware yesterday police had a witness to his skateboarding fall, but says that wasn't why he recanted. I would have come forward. I, I just can't handle I, I, I can't handle it no more. He says when he fell from his skateboard, he panicked but managed to get through a press conference where he claimed to be the victim of a hit and run. I'm not going to go out there and hunt for you, but, you know, it's just hopefully you turn yourself in. I was more, I was, I was scared. I was freaked out. Um, my coach knowing that I was on a skateboard and um, my parents knowing I was on a skateboard and that kind of stuff and doing this to myself. A year out from the London Olympics, he says it was silly for him to be taking risks, but his embarrassment over his fall has led to a much greater shame. He just kept snowballing and snowballing more and more and more. It just came out and it, it just got too much for me. It was just a, just a, a stupid thing I'd done and I regret it and I, I do apologise big time. Monk says the lie was his alone and none of his teammates were involved. He hopes to be back training with them just as soon as his elbow heals. But Swimming Australia could still sanction the freestyler. Just a bit disappointed, I suppose, that Kenrick... Um... Uh, you know, told the story. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a very high pressure year. This one being being the Olympic year, Olympic trials year. And police could lay charges. Donna Field, ABC News, Brisbane. Pretty interesting story, right? So it's an outright lie. And let's be honest. Probably all of us, at some point in time, have either embellished the truth or outright lied because of shame. Instead of coming out about it and being coming clean about it. We, uh, we work out how to hide it, and if it comes down to lying, we do it. See, there's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says that you've done something wrong, and you can get forgiveness with guilt, but the really interesting thing about shame is you can have a situation where you've done something, where you've been guilty. You can get forgiveness for that, but you can still walk away feeling dirty. There can be a sense of legal acquittal of what you've done wrong, the problem with shame is that guilt's kind of like the thing that's in the courtroom and shame's like the thing that's in the courtroom of the community and in the courtroom of relationships. And it's really, really difficult to handle. The shame person feels worthless, expects rejection and needs cleansing, fellowship, love and acceptance, which is a really good segue into talking about how Jesus handled people with shame. So I'm going to give you four examples of people that were filled with shame that Jesus dealt with and how he dealt with them. Here's the first one. This is out of, I should quote it for you, Mark 2, 15 to 17. It says here, As Jesus reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus hangs out with shameful people. And it's a really interesting thing. If I go back to this screen here, there's, it almost sets up a point of tension there where you just think, Jesus is hanging out with who? Who's he with? Now, the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the Romans to get taxes off the other Jewish people and they ripped them off. They were like the pimps of their day, all right? It's like Jesus is hanging out with the pimps and the alcoholics and the prostitutes. And there's a problem here. There's at least a problem here in the eyes of the church people and the religious people of the day because they're looking, they're going... The bad stuff of these people is going to rub off on Jesus. It's not right for God to hang out with bad people. It's not right for God to hang out with dirty people, with unclean people. He needs to stay with the good people. But the truth is, we actually see here straight up, is Jesus is hanging out with people who are the shame people. They're the outcasts. They're the shunned of society. They're the dirty ones. Their shame ought to rub off on him, but what we actually find is that they're his favourites. And probably the religious people are his least favourites. Exhibit two. The Old Testament law made these explicit statements about people who had the skin disease of leprosy. Listen to this. And think about shame in this context. The leprous person who has the disease of leprosy shall wear torn clothes... And let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. I mean, I've even heard it said that they used to have a bell, and they'd walk through the town, and they'd ring this bell. They weren't allowed to live in the town, they had to live in a colony outside the town. I mean, hopefully you can just hear shame all over this. You hear outcasts, you hear you're not one of us, we don't want you to be one of us, we don't want your disease to get on us, because then we're going to be unclean, then we're going to be kicked out, then we're going to be no one. And they walk around yelling out, unclean, unclean. And the really interesting thing about that is, I'd put it to you right now, how much of the time do we walk around, maybe we don't say it out loud, sometimes I think we do, and we are saying in the presence of other people, unclean, unclean. Outcast, outcast. Not good enough, not good enough. So what does a leper have to do? He shall remain unclean as long as he has a disease, which is pretty much for life. He's unclean. He will live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's the rule. What does Jesus do? When he came down, this is Matthew 8. When he came down from the mountain, Jesus, great clouds followed him. Crowds clouds followed him. Crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. As a really, if we just pause here, this is again another one of those situations where you just think, here's a moment of tension. What is Jesus going to be doing with this guy? He probably shouldn't even be talking with this guy. This guy's unclean. He's an outcast. Jesus stretched out his hand and he did what? He touched him. You're not supposed to do that. And then there's this moment where you just think, well, what's going to happen now? 
This is the shamed person. This is the outcast. This is the person that's got a disease. Jesus has just touched me, touched him. Which one's going to win? Is Jesus going to win or is shame going to win? Is Jesus going to win or is leprosy going to win? Which one's going to win? Who's going to bring purity to who or who's going to bring defilement to who? And we all know, and you know plenty of stories, that touch can be an incredibly powerful thing and touch can be an incredibly destructive thing. If you get touched in the wrong way, you can be set up for decades of struggle. And some of you probably know what I'm talking about. But what happens here is Jesus' touch. Jesus doesn't catch anything. The leper gets healed. Jesus said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And what you actually see here is you start to see this mechanism happening where the holiness of God intersects with people and rather than Jesus getting tarnished with our shame, with our uncleanness, he brings purity to uncleanness. Exhibit 3. And when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now clearly, uh, the commentators think this is a gynecological problem. I mean, aside from the legal ramifications in, the, in the, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, I mean, that would be bad, wouldn't it? To bleed for 12 years. I mean, you would just, you would just have the shame, wouldn't you, of, the, of kind of, of the controlling that, the, uh, I guess, the kind of, and I don't mean in any way to be disrespectful because I don't understand it because I'm not a, a woman, but you've got the, the mess of that. The, the, I mean, it's just, it's bad. She'd spent all her living on physicians and she couldn't be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. You see this? We've had the tax collectors and the sinners who brought shame on themselves. We had the leper, shame came upon him because of his disease. And now we've got this woman who's in a similar situation. She didn't do it, but she's in a position of shame. And let me read you from Leviticus 15, 25 to 30 about what the Old Testament law said about a lady like this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, this is Leviticus 15, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. Imagine being this lady. This lady has been unclean for a dozen years. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. You see this? Everything she touches is messed up because she's bleeding. And she shall wash their clothes and bathe... uh, Sorry, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean. Sorry, I'll go back. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. 
The Bible doesn't tell us whether she's married. Imagine that. Husband gives her a hug. All right, I've got to wash the clothes now. And I'm unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one, of, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make a tame for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. But that's not this lady, because <laughs> it's still happening. What's going to happen? She's just touched Jesus. It says here in Luke 8, it says immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now you know what's really interesting about this is if I was counselling this lady and she'd just been healed, the one thing that I wouldn't want to do is bring her out into the public. Because shame can happen in the public, right? But that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls her out of her hiding into the public and it's a really interesting situation. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Yeah, he knew. But he was calling her out from her shame. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This amazing healing happens. This healing from the physical uncleanness of bleeding. But can you see the healing that's come to the shame? Exhibit 4. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, one of the church guys. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Listen to this next line. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now what you're hearing there is her reputation, right? Everyone knew. Now the really interesting thing about this woman is everyone's going to know for all time that she was a sinner. Now, typically, uh, people have thought that she uh, played some kind of prostitution role. We don't really know. So here's the interesting situation. You're at, it's like you're at the senior pastor's house. You've got God there, and a woman shows up, and her reputation is completely the fact that she's unclean, she's filled with shame, she's a sinner, she ought not be there. And I'm even kind of, honestly, I'm wondering how did she even get in, all right? Maybe the Pharisee didn't have a door in his house or something, but I mean, they, they would have known about her. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And I'll submit this to you. You need to be like this woman with your shame. She doesn't hide. She moves toward Jesus. And you get that with the previous story that I just told about the woman with the flow of blood. She's unclean, but there's this sense in her that Jesus can do something about her shame, that Jesus can do something about her uncleanness, and she goes in a direction that doesn't look like it makes any sense at all. Why would you go toward God with shame? But this is exactly what the whole Bible's about. 
The whole Bible's about shame and about God calling people out of their shame and moving toward God and not hiding anymore. And this is a big problem in the church and now we've got this terrible thing with this royal commission going on where we've got the church has been involved in pouring shame upon people. There's a lady over in the States that was sexually abused by a Baptist youth pastor over there and she's made it her life's mission to find pedophiles in the church. And the big problem for her is that people go up and they say they pray for her and they want her to go to God, but this guy, when he abused her, said stuff like, uh, this is what God wants us to do. So the one area where she could actually go to have hope, which is Jesus, is the thing that is probably the most tarnished for her. And it's a shame, it's shame upon the church that we've been like that. And we've been far too merciful on the offenders and not aggressive enough in defence of the people that have been offended. So what's going to happen here? This woman, this sinner, was standing behind him at his feet and she was crying. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Again, what's going to happen? She's a bad woman. She shouldn't be near Jesus. But that's where she needs to go. You see, that's the only help for people who suffer and struggle with shame is to get to Jesus. And the church ought to be a place where we all come in and we come clean about stuff. And we don't hide things and we don't put on an ego thing and we don't put on a different persona with different people that we meet with. The church ought to be a place where we come and we're open and we're honest and Jesus is actually here in the middle of us and we're all going to him with our shame. But unfortunately, the church doesn't always do that. But that doesn't mean people don't need to get to Jesus. True? They need to get to Jesus. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And one of the coolest things about Jesus, I reckon, is that he answers people's thoughts, (laughs) which is really freaky, right? So he's had this thought, and then Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And then he tells a story about being forgiven much. But do you see what's happening here? What actually happens at the end of this story? This is in Luke 7. What actually happens at the end of this story is Jesus says to this woman, he says, your sins are forgiven. You see, she ought to be making Jesus dirty. She ought to be making Jesus unclean. She ought to be, it it would appear that she ought to be turning Jesus into an outcast, but it actually works in the reverse to what you expect. So I want to finish with this. We're going to have communion in a minute. But I want to finish with this. You know what the hardest thing is about shame? It's actually coming clean about it. I get really irritated when people play games because I just think, let's just be honest. And one of the things I often say to people when you get in a group situation, I just say, look, if everyone's honest, we've all got blackmail material on each other and everyone's going to be safe. 
And that's how it ought to be in the church, right? We're honest, we're transparent, especially in community groups, so that we've all got blackmail material on each other and there's a safety in it and Jesus comes and helps us. This is the hardest thing. And I think one of the reasons why this is the hardest thing about shame is that shame feels a lot like home. You can live in it for so long that you just, it just feels like home and you can't imagine ever coming out of it. But we want to say to you and we want to lead a church where it's good to talk about the things that we feel shameful about. It's good to be honest. It's good to be transparent. We will defend you. We'll protect you. We'll, we'll have community groups where people defend each other and they defend the integrity of personal things that people share. We want to live up to being a church where people get help who are shamed. Jesus would say to you today, in your shame, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because that's the big risk about being open about things is that we're going to be ostracised and we're going to be marginalised and kind of an outcast. Jesus says, no one who comes to me will ever be ostracised or marginalised or put on the outer. So I submit to you today, will you come out or will you stay in your cell of shame?